Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a presentation and conversation with historian and author Adam Hochschild and host Michael Lerner as they discuss his new book, Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War. Adam Hochschild, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. We've known each other for a long time. Um, we were just figuring it out, it goes back to 1962 or so in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, have many friends in common, and I have been an admirer of your work as a, a, a historian for many years. Uh, I'm going to um, read some of uh, what Adam has written because I can't remember it all. The first book of his that I read, and it was his first book, was called Halfway Home, a memoir of father and son. It was published in 86, and the New York Times called it an extraordinarily moving portrait of the complexities and confusions of familial love. And it was really uh, a beautiful, beautiful book um, about his family. Then he wrote The Mirror at Midnight, A South African Journey, The Unquiet Ghosts, Russians Remember Stalin, Finding the Trapdoor, Essays, Portraits, Travels, King Leopold's Ghost, A Story of Greed, Terror, and Heroism in Colonial Africa, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Award, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, and his Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire Empire's Slaves, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the Los Angeles Times Book Award and a Penn USA Literary Award. Uh, for the body of his work, he's received a Lanham Literary Award and the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award of the American Historical Association, and his work has been translated into 15 languages. He's also written for The New Yorker, Harper's The New York Review of Books, uh, Granta, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic. He was a co-founder of Mother Jones, an editor and writer for Ramparts, and teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also married to Arlie Russell Hochschild, herself a very extraordinary writer and sociologist, who recently wrote a book called Strangers in Their Own Land about why this one touched me very deeply because of all the work we've done on chemical policy reform and actually working in Louisiana on, in these communities. And she wrote an extraordinary book on why the white workers who, whose lives and families have been so affected by the chemical plants near them support the Tea Party. And uh, so that's an extraordinary piece of work uh, that also came out in the same year as Spain in Our Hearts. And so Adam and Arlie both had these remarkable books, um, and I read both uh, in the same year. So it just gives you a sense of, uh, of the gifts of Adam and Arlie and their remarkable family. So Adam, with that, I welcome you and I turn it over to you for your presentation and then we'll have a Good. conversation. Well, thank you, Michael. It's uh, a real pleasure to me to be here. Uh, we've known each other for years, but I have not before seen you in your natural habitat here. <laughs> uh, 
uh, a place where uh, a lot of good stuff has gone on over the years, a lot of healing that has touched the lives of uh, people that I know, uh, most recently that of my daughter-in-law. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also always nice to be in Bolinas. I know that I'm surrounded by immensely creative people. Uh, and uh, it's an honor to be among you and also to see here two of my journalist colleagues, uh, Mark Dowie and Ed Dobb. So I'm going to talk about this most recent book that I wrote. Um, and as we go into that subject matter, I'm going to ask you to sort of mentally roll the clock back uh, to the 1930s. And just imagine the context of that time, because that's when this Spanish Civil War took place. Um, it was a pretty grim time. At home, we had the Great Depression taking a terrible toll. A quarter of the American working population was out of work, another quarter underemployed. And abroad, the Depression was taking a similar toll, but even more grim because these hardships were fueling some very nasty movements. In Germany, uh, Hitler was very rapidly rising towards power, finally took power in 1933. In Italy, Benito Mussolini uh, had already been in power since the early 1920s. And furthermore, and this is something we often forget, regimes of the extreme right, usually quite anti-Semitic, often semi-fascist, were in power or on their way to power throughout most of Eastern Europe. So fascism was definitely on the rise throughout the continent. As the French writer André Malraux said, fascism has spread its great black wings over Europe. Paradoxically, one of the bright spots in Europe of the early 1930s was Spain. In 1931, centuries of monarchy that had recently been mixed with a period of military dictatorship came to an end, statues toppled, <clears throat> elections were held, the king left the country, Spain became a republic, the youngest democracy in Europe. This was something that was greeted uh, with widespread rejoicing, not just in Spain, this photograph was taken in Madrid, but everywhere, because democracy seemed to have arrived at last in a country that up to that point had had very, very little of it. One of the big losers in this change of regime in Spain was the Catholic Church, which had previously controlled all education in Spain. Now, Spain remained a very divided country, a country of huge disparities of wealth, with a very small elite at the top and a large mass of miserably poor peasantry at the bottom, millions of people living in dirt-floored huts with little or no land. More than a quarter of the population was illiterate, uh, by far the highest rate in Western Europe. In early 1936, progressives around the world felt a further surge of optimism about Spain because elections held in February that year in the Spanish Republic brought to victory a coalition of left and liberal parties. They wanted more social and economic justice, and much could be done. Then, however, in July 1936, a large group of right-wing army officers rose up against the elected government of the Spanish Republic. 
the Spanish Civil War had begun. It was a real shock. This was the biggest armed conflict in Europe since the end of World War I, almost 20 years earlier. These right-wing officers called themselves nationalists. They were determined to overthrow the government of the Republic, and the Spanish nationalists very quickly came under the leadership of a tough-talking young general named Francisco Franco. Uh, what did they want? They wanted an end to democracy. They wanted a Spain based on those large estates in the countryside, which meant rolling back land reform. They wanted military dictatorship. And Franco had an appeal to people that I think was, had many things in common with other demagogues at the time and that we've become familiar with since then. We can trace it in his propaganda posters. First of all, there was the appeal of the strongman. Place your trust in me. Don't worry about the details. I'll fix things. It'll be terrific. <laughs> then there was the idea that all of Spain's problems were caused by certain groups that had to be gotten rid of. In the case of Spain in 1936, these groups were Bolsheviks, anarchists, separatists, you know, Catalonia and the Basque country, uh, strongly separatist, uh, and oddly, Freemasons, because the Masons in Spain had traditionally been very anti-clerical. Anti uh, another part of the appeal was an appeal to the glories of the past. Uh, in other words, make Spain great again. Uh, many of the emblems and symbols he used had to do with evoking the days of the old Spanish Empire, which he frequently did. Uh, it was always a little foggy about how the Spanish colonies in the Americas were going to be restored, but that appeal to the glorious days of the past was very much uh, part of his, his appeal to people. Uh, and the Spanish nationalists adopted that right-wing uh, fascist salute from Germany and Italy, but the symbol of the movement very much harked back to the past. The arrows date from the Inquisition from, for shooting down heretics, and the double yoke symbolizes absolute obedience uh, to the joined kingdoms of Aragon and Castile. So that was the nationalist emblem, the, the double yoke and the arrows. And in later days of the war, when the Nationalist Air Force had uh, superiority of the skies over the uh, Republicans, their fighter planes would trace skywriting of that symbol in the sky. Now, the revolt by the Spanish Nationalists was heavily supported by the Catholic hierarchy. And you can find many pictures like this of priests and bishops uh, giving that salute uh, along with Franco's generals. The Catholic hierarchy was uh, by far the most reactionary in Europe, in Spain, and he was going to give uh, education back to the Catholic Church. Somebody else who supported Franco wholeheartedly was Adolf Hitler. Uh, there was widespread horror throughout Europe that Hitler now had a new ally. He sent help to Franco immediately, arms, advisors, ammunition, tanks, planes, pilots. And for Hitler, 
supporting Franco was not only a chance to bring a sympathetic uh, dictator to power in another country and have a new ally, it was also the war that was going on was a chance to test out some of Germany's new weapons for the much larger war that Hitler was already planning. For example, the uh, Messerschmitt 109 fighter plane, mainstay of the Luftwaffe in World War II, was flown in combat extensively for the first time in Spain. Same thing with the Stuka dive bomber and with many, many other weapons as well, tanks, artillery, much more. Uh, Mussolini not only sent Franco and the Nationalists planes and tanks, but 80,000 ground troops as well. In the uh, first week or two of the war, the Spanish Nationalists under Franco seized roughly a third of the country. The area is colored gray on the map there. But they rapidly gained ground, and by several months later, they had almost half the country under their control, and as you can see from the map, they were right at the gates of Madrid, the capital city. The army of the Spanish Republic uh, fought on as best they could, uh, but they were very ill-equipped. You can see from this photo of Republican troops in, in action, uh, the uh, artillery piece of the background is so ancient, it doesn't even have rubber-tired wheels. None of the troops have helmets. Uh, the Spanish Republic pleaded desperately with the major democracies, uh, the United States, Britain, France, for the right to buy arms. And, uh, interestingly, Spain had the money to buy those arms because they had the world's fourth largest gold reserves. Why? Because Spain had been fortunate enough to remain neutral during the First World War while the rest of Europe was spending itself into bankruptcy. But all the democracies said no. They did not want to get drawn into a new war in Europe which threatened to become uh, a world war. Uh, in the United States, for instance, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was sympathetic to the Republic. He was certainly a man who knew what fascism was and who hated it, but he was a very shrewd politician. He knew the American people were deeply isolationist and had no appetite for getting involved in a European war. So he said no as well. Finally, the only major country uh, willing to sell arms to the Republic after a delay of some months was not another democracy. It was Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And he demanded a lot in return. Above all, high positions for both Spanish and Soviet communists uh, in both the Republican Army's high command and in the government. But he did sell the Republic crucial arms, especially aircraft and tanks, supplied the crews to man them, and these were really uh, critically important in the fall of 1936 when they helped prevent the Franco and the Nationalists from seizing Madrid, which they otherwise would have done. Stalin also did something else, which was that he instructed communist parties around the world to begin recruiting men as volunteers to fight in Spain. These were the forces that became the famous international brigades, and they also played an absolutely crucial role in defending Madrid in the early days of the war, the fall of 1936. Um, 
these are some of those International Brigade volunteers, a fall of 1936. The International Brigades ultimately uh, totaled more than 35,000 men from over 50 countries, a crucial force. Uh, these, these men were in action in the fall of 1936 at a point when the front line between the Republican and Nationalist forces ran right through the campus of the uh, city's university on the northwest outskirts of the city. Uh, these guys are defending the philosophy and letters building. Uh, buildings on campus actually changed hands between these, these forces. And if you look very carefully, you can see under the row of sandbags on the left, there are stacks of books. Uh, we don't know the nationality of the men in the picture, but given the time that it was taken, it was fairly early on because obviously the weather is still warm. They're just in t-shirts there. They were most likely uh, British or French or Polish because those were the first groups of volunteers to arrive. British volunteers, incidentally, noted that uh, if you were building a barrier like this and you placed a book uh, face up against an oncoming bullet, a bullet would penetrate 350 pages before stopping. So that's one use for overly thick books. Uh, at the very beginning of 1937, uh, the American volunteers began to arrive. This is one of the first groups uh, marching through Barcelona, early 1937. Uh, ultimately, there were 2,800 Americans who went to volunteer in Spain, by far the largest number of Americans who've ever gotten involved in somebody else's civil war. The American volunteers who survived are all dead now. But one of the things that made me interested in writing about this period was that I knew several of them, half a dozen of them, all men gone now, uh, all 30 or 40 years older than me. And I bet some of you here probably knew of one or two of these guys also because there were a lot of them <coughs> in the Bay Area. Uh, the last known American volunteer died in California at the age of 100 last year. The Americans uh, who went to Spain came from 40, 46 of what were then 48 states. Uh, most, although by no means all of them, were members of the Communist Party or its affiliated groups. They came from every imaginable walk of life, from the son of a former governor of Ohio, son of a former mayor of Los Angeles, to a vaudeville acrobat, teachers, lumberjacks, longshoremen. Uh, why did they go? I think because they felt, as did uh, millions, tens of millions of people around the world, that the greatest threat that the world faced uh, at that point in time was rapidly expanding fascism that sooner or later would threaten all countries. Uh, one American volunteer, Maury Kolau of New York, later said, for us, it wasn't Franco, it was always Hitler. Uh, another, Hyman Katz, who was actually just been a, a young rabbi who had just finished his training, wrote to his mother from Spain that if he hadn't come forever afterwards, he would ask himself, why didn't I wake up when the alarm clock rang? He was killed several months later. 
A uh, number of the Americans who went were college students. Uh, in this picture, the uh, guy on the right is from Oberlin, the other four from New York University. The American volunteers fought in most of the critical battles of the war. Of those 2,800 Americans, 750 were killed, more than one out of four. Hundreds of the remainder were wounded. And that's a higher death rate than the U.S. military experienced in either of the world wars. Uh, they often fought in broiling heat. Uh, this photo was taken just before the Battle of the Ebro uh, in the summer of 1938, where at one point the temperature was measured at 98 degrees in the shade, 134 in the sun. Uh, Americans also fought in another battle at Terrawell, where the temperature was at one point measured at 18 degrees below zero. Uh, now, when I write about history, I like to try to bring a period of time alive by focusing in on a small number of people uh, who lived through it. And several of the people in this book are American volunteers. And here are two of them. Bob and Marion Merriman. This photograph was taken on their wedding day which was the day that they both graduated from college in 1932 at the University of Nevada at Reno. Mm. Bob Merriman was an athlete there. He'd played end on the, on the football team. A couple months after that, they moved to Berkeley, where he became a student and eventually head teaching fellow uh, as a graduate student in the Department of Economics. One of his fellow students was a fellow graduate student was a young Canadian named John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, and I felt an odd sense of personal connection uh, with this couple because in going through their letters, I discovered that they lived only when they were in Berkeley, only a few blocks from where I live today. And every time I walk from my house to the Graduate School of Journalism where I teach a class, I walk past the building where they lived. Uh, when he was an undergrad at the University of Nevada at Reno, Bob Merriman, who worked his way through, through college, as did his wife, uh, Marion, discovered he could earn an ex extra $8.50 a month, which was a lot of money in the Depression years, by taking ROTC. So he did. And that meant that when he got to Spain, he was one of the very few Americans uh, among the volunteers who had had any kind of military training. And he was almost immediately made an officer and made commander of the American battalion. Uh, he was wounded in action, uh, then recovered from his wounds, and later became one of the highest ranking uh, Americans in Spain, eventually chief of staff of the 15th International Brigade, which was the unit that included all American, British, and Canadian volunteers, and a few from other countries as well. Widely known for his charisma and bravery. Uh, his wife, Marion, went to Spain also, uh, became a corporal in the Spanish army, and was the only American woman working in uniform in the International Brigade headquarters. Uh, there were other Americans in Spain besides the soldiers, a lot of medical volunteers, doctors and nurses. The uh, woman in the foreground in this picture, Solaria Key, came from, was a nurse from Harlem Hospital in New York City. 
in Spain in the American military hospital there. She was in charge of a ward with five white nurses working under her, something which would have been unimaginable in the United States in that time. Uh, one of the medical volunteers uh, I ended up following in, in my book was a guy named James Nugas, who was a fairly widely published poet at the time that he went to Spain. Uh, he kept a diary while he was there. By the way, do historians a favor and keep diaries. <laughs> They're wonderful material for us to, for us to work from. Uh, Nugas was wounded, but he survived the war. He was an ambulance driver survived the war, uh, died quite young, only a decade after the war was, was over. And everybody, people knew he'd been keeping a diary, but everyone assumed it had been lost. It was discovered, no one is completely sure how it got there, on sale in a Vermont used bookstore in the year 2010, seven years ago. Uh, and it was edited and published by two Bay Area scholars, uh, Peter Carroll and Peter Glazer. I think it's perhaps the, the finest piece of writing by an American volunteer in Spain. Uh, another uh, medical volunteer I follow is a nurse, Toby Jensky, who came to Spain from Beth Israel Hospital in New York. Uh, at one point in the American military hospital there, she fell in love with a wounded soldier. And it's always fascinating when you can reconstruct a love affair from several different angles. In this case, we have letters from her. Uh, do historians another favor, by the way, and keep your letters, especially love letters. Uh, we have a memoir by the soldier, and we also have an account by somebody who knew them both in Spain, who also worked at the hospital, who says that things didn't happen at all the way he described in his memoir. Uh, another group of uh, <clears throat> Americans in Spain I was particularly interested in were the correspondents who covered the war. Uh, here are some of them uh, observing and photographing a bombardment. The war was a huge news story. During the time that it raged from uh, mid-1936 to early 1939, there were more than a thousand front page headlines in the New York Times dealing with the Spanish Civil War, more than on any other single topic. The rise of Hitler, the re-election of President Roosevelt, the toll of the Great De Depression. Uh, and there were nearly a thousand foreign correspondents in Spain at one time or another coming from all over the world. One volunteer wrote home, everybody but Shakespeare is here. Every country sent reporters. Here's one group, and of course, in the middle of it, as he always managed to be in the middle of any group he was in, is the best known of the correspondents, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he made four lengthy trips to Spain during the war as a uh, reporter for the North American News Alliance, uh, Newspaper Alliance, which was a consortium of some 50 newspapers. Uh, also in Spain with him was his then-girlfriend, later uh, third wife, uh, Martha Gellhorn, who was reporting for Collier's uh, magazine. And in this photograph, she's with Bob Merriman of Berkeley, whom I was telling you about before. 
Now, for the correspondence, the big story, which they covered endlessly, was the bombing of Madrid. This was the first time that a European capital had been under heavy, sustained, nonstop aerial bombardment. This was the city where the correspondents were based, and they wrote hundreds of thousands of words about this. Uh, and it certainly was a le legitimate story to cover. But I've done some reporting from abroad myself, occasionally from conflict zones, and one thing I've noticed about large groups of journalists in such places is that they, we, tend to practice a kind of herd behavior. Mm -hmm. Reporters always travel in packs and all too often cover the same story. And this was very true in Spain. They kept a close eye on each other, tended to report the same story. And there's a reason why journalists do this, which is that no reporter in the field wants to hear from his or her editor back home saying that a rival newspaper or network is reporting a battle here or a crucial announcement there, and why haven't we heard anything about it from you? Um, this herd behavior business was all the more enforced in Spain by the fact that uh, the foreign correspondents all stayed in the same hotel in Madrid, the Hotel Florida. They ate dinner together every night at the same restaurant a few blocks away at a table, long table that was reserved for them. Uh, and then they would usually go back to Hemingway's suite at the hotel and drink into the early hours of the morning. And you can find description after description of this in the memoirs of correspondents who were there. So for me, looking back on this 80 years later, the question becomes, what stories did the herd miss? Now that we can see things a little more clearly. And in Spain, I think there were two really big stories that they missed. One of them got very little coverage, and the other absolutely none at all. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Adam Hochschild and host Michael Lerner. Here's the first. In most of northeastern Spain, Barcelona, surrounding Catalonia, the nearby region of Aragon, uh, Franco's military coup was defeated initially not by loyal soldiers, but by hastily organized, badly armed militias that had been set up by left-wing political parties or trade unions. Uh, many of these militia forces included women. And when these militia groups in the Northeast uh, defeated the nationalist grab for power in those areas, they found themselves in control of much of the Spanish Republic. These workers were a mixture of socialists, communists, and above all, anarchists, a tradition that was very strong in Spain, even though by this point it had largely died out everywhere else in the world. For a period of about six or eight months, they carried out the most far-reaching social revolution Western Europe has ever seen. Workers took over factories, and sometimes they converted them to making munitions that were desperately needed at the front, like this uh, homemade armored car made by these auto workers mm -hmm. in Barcelona. In Barcelona, incidentally, they took over the Ford and General Motors plants there. Uh, railway workers took over the train system in the Northeast. That's the initials of the Anarchist, Anarchist Trade Union Federation on the side of that locomotive. 
these landless peasants took over the large estates where they had once worked as laborers. In Barcelona, here is what the restaurant of the Ritz Hotel, the city's largest and fanciest, looked like just before the war. It, it got taken over by its cooks, waiters, and busboys, who turned it into people's cafeteria number one for the poor. The foreign correspondents in Spain almost totally ignored writing about this social revolution. They were too busy trying to keep up with each other and reporting the bombing of Madrid. So in trying to tell the story and in, in writing about it, I decided to take the reader through that social revolution, through the lives of two young Americans who experienced it. Here is the photo page from their joint passport. Lois and Charles Orr. Uh, Lois was a student at the uh, University of Louisville, Kentucky. In her sophomore year, she dropped out of school and she married her economics instructor, Charles Orr, who was about 10 years older than she. Uh, they were leftists, but strongly anti-Stalinist. And they went to Europe on their honeymoon, a very political honeymoon. They wanted to see what Nazism looked like up close. They planned to travel on to India to see colonialism firsthand. But while they were traveling in France and Germany, they got word of the attempted military coup in Spain and of the fact that this uh, remarkable social revolution had broken out in uh, the Northeast. And Lois Orr, who was the live wire of the two, insisted to her somewhat older and considerably stodgier husband that they had to go there. So they hitchhiked to the border, crossed the border two months after the war started, and spent the next 10 months living and working in Barcelona. Lois Orr was 19 years old. Uh, during those 10 months, she wrote the most extraordinary series of letters home and she spent much of the rest of her life writing and rewriting and rewriting an unpublished memoir uh, of living in that revolutionary period. They met other young idealists from all over Europe who had come to Barcelona because they also wanted to take part in these events. These were independent-minded leftists who were excited that here there seemed to be a revolution that was genuinely coming from the bottom up not one that had been imposed from the top down, as in Russia. One of the young people in their circle, for example, was a 23-year-old German political refugee named Willy Brandt. Mm. Uh, another became still more famous. He's in this photo here of the militia unit he joined in Barcelona. And he is, of course, uh, George Orwell, far in the back. Um, uh, in his memoir of this period, which I'm sure some of you have read, Homage to Catalonia, uh, George Orwell uh, writes very eloquently about this period of social revolution that the foreign correspondents ignored. He was not in Spain as a correspondent. He was there to fight. Let me just read you a short passage from what he wrote uh, about his first arrival in Barcelona and how things struck him. Waiters looked you in the face and treated you as an equal. 
servile and even ceremonial forms of speech had temporarily disappeared. Nobody said senor or don. Everyone called everyone else comrade and thou. Almost my first experience was receiving a lecture from a hotel manager for trying to tip a lift boy. All this was queer and moving. I recognized it immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. Mm. Now, there was another huge story in Spain that uh, the foreign correspondents also ignored. In this case, totally. Not a word about it in any single American or European newspaper. Uh, a modern military needs oil. Uh, tanks run on diesel fuel. These are some of Mussolini's tanks that he sent to Spain. Uh, bombers, like this Nazi uh, Henkel bomber over Spain, run on aviation gasoline. Trucks run on regular gasoline, and so forth. All the time those correspondents were writing about the bombing of Madrid, they never looked up at the aircraft dropping bombs on them and wondered whose fuel is powering those planes. It should have been an obvious question because nationalist Spain had no oil. Germany and Italy, which were heavily supplying it with arms, were oil importers, not exporters. Uh, they could have advanced uh, money to Franco for him to buy oil on the world market, but that would have been very expensive. Moreover, in those days, if you went buying oil on the world market, where would you go? Most likely to the United States, the largest source, and the largest source within the United States was the state of Texas. Uh, here are some oil wells there in that period. But the United States was not selling arms to either side in Spain, and U.S. neutrality law was very strict. It said even if you sold something that wasn't a weapon that was going to a country at war, such as oil, it could not travel on American ships, and nationalist Spain had no oil tankers. Furthermore, it couldn't be sold on credit, and nationalist Spain had very little cash because the Republicans had gotten the gold supply. However, this was not a problem for General Franco because he had a great admirer who was the CEO of a major American oil company. The man's name was Torquild Reber, and he was the CEO of Texaco. He was a guy who liked strongmen, liked dictators. Whether Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, later in his life he had some dealings with the Shah of Iran. And Oil companies then, like today, tend to make their own foreign policy. And Reber happily sold the nationalists the vast majority of their oil during the war. He sold it on credit, which was a violation of US law, and he sold it to them at a big discount, sort of dictator's discount, uh, something which he never told Texaco shareholders about. It doesn't appear in the company's annual reports. And as far as we can tell from the minutes of their meetings, he never even told his own board of directors about it. Now, I mentioned that nationalist Spain had no oil, oil tankers. Not a problem. Uh, Texaco had one of the world's largest fleets of uh, ocean-going tankers. And in another violation of U.S. law, Reber shipped Texaco oil to nationalist Spain on Texaco tankers. What would happen 
is that these ships would load up at the Texaco pipeline terminal in Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, and when U.S. customs agents got on board to check their paperwork, they'd be shown documents showing that the ship was bound for Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Antwerp, some port in northern Europe. Once at sea, the captains would open sealed orders, redirecting them to ports in nationalist-held Spain. So those bombers over Madrid were fueled by Texas oil. And that's not all. Reber was such an enthusiast for Franco that he went to nationalist Spain twice during the war. The second time, he got a VIP tour of the front. He's second from the right in this photo. Uh, the man at the far left, appropriately wearing a black hat, is another uh, Texaco executive, William Brewster, who was head of Texaco's Western European operations. And... Uh, Reber and Brewster put Texaco at Franco's service in another way. Texaco had offices, oil tanks, installations, agents in ports all over the world. And Reber and Brewster asked them to send immediately by telegram to Texaco headquarters in Paris any information they picked up about oil shipments heading for the Spanish Republic, heading for the other side. Because in the oil business, as in other businesses, you tend to know what your competitors are up to, and it's quite hard to disguise an oil tanker taking on cargo somewhere. This intelligence they passed on immediately, Texaco passed on, to the Spanish nationalists, where information about oil tankers heading for the Spanish Republic was highly useful to nationalist uh, bomber pilots and submarine captains looking for targets. Uh, 29 tankers carrying oil to the Republic during the war were sunk, damaged, or captured. And here's the story of one which met its end thanks to information supplied by Texaco. This is a letter that William Brewster wrote to the head of the Nationalist Oil Monopoly, July 2nd, 1937, about a tanker bound for the Spanish Republic that was temporarily stopped in a French port near Bordeaux. And uh, the letter gives important information. It has the name of the ship. It says it's fully loaded with a cargo of gasoline. Actually, it was aviation gasoline. And then in the second paragraph, he says, her name and port of registry have been painted out. Her hull and funnel are now painted black. Uh, <clears throat> recently took on a large store of food, which seems to indicate an early departure. One more crucial piece of information was added in a separate document from Texaco's uh, man at the docks in Bordeaux, who observed that most of the tanker's crew came ashore every evening, you know, to hang out in the bars and dance halls of the port. Using that information, the knowledge the tanker was there and that most of the crew came ashore every evening, one evening, the national, a couple of days after these letters were received, the same information was sent by telegram. The nationalists sent a raiding party which boarded the ship, the SS Campo Amor, seized it, uh, and sailed it to a port held by nationalist Spain. So the United States might be officially neutral, but Texaco had gone to war. Well, with help like that from Texaco, 
and uh, still more important, continuing uh, flow of arms from uh, Hitler and Mussolini, uh, the nationalists advanced relentlessly. By late 1937, they held most of Spain, again, the, the gray area on the map. Uh, and as you can see, there's one finger of nationalist-held territory on the right that sort of comes close to dividing the republic uh, in two. And everybody knew that when the next big offensive came, that's where it would be. And indeed, in March 1938, the nationalists launched the largest offensive of the war, heavily supported by German and Italian uh, planes and tanks, lots of Italian troops driving towards the Mediterranean, trying to divide the Republic in two. The Republic's forces were vastly overwhelmed and uh, outnumbered. Uh, the American units were in the forces that took the brunt of that attack. The Republicans were, were forced into a long, disastrous retreat over about five weeks, tens of thousands of casualties overall. Hundreds of Americans were killed and wounded during that time. And at the end of the five-week offensive, uh, Franco succeeded in cutting uh, the Spanish Republic in two. The war lasted another 10 months, but it was clear at this point that the Republic was doomed. Uh, and as that became clear and the nationalists gained more ground, hundreds of thousands of refugees began to flee. Uh, in the end, in early 1939, half a million Spaniards fleeing Franco crossed the Pyrenees, most of them on foot, into France. Um, the war was over by the end of March 1939. The Republic had lost. Uh, Franco celebrated his victory in Madrid in the spring of 1939 and remained dictator of Spain for the rest of his life, 36 more years. Um, because my interest uh, was in Americans in the war, I'm going to end by coming back to the Americans who went to Spain and show you pictures of a few of those who didn't return. Uh, Norman Lisberg, a carpenter from Louisiana, killed at Teruel, that's that battle in the snow, January 25th, 1938. Uh, James Lardner, a journalist for the New York Herald Tribune who quit his job, came from a famous literary family. His father was Ring Lardner, the, the, the humorist. He quit his job, enlisted. He was the last American uh, to enlist and one of the last to be killed. Samuel Willis, uh, uh, a construction laborer from Philadelphia, a scout and runner in Spain, Killed in action March 17, 1938, during that disastrous retreat I was telling you about. Abraham Chaikin, wrestling coach at the City College of New York, went missing in action the same day as Willis. And finally, uh, Bob Merriman from Berkeley, whom I told you about earlier, his story threads through the book. Uh, and he also went missing in action on that same retreat. Uh, a week or two after the other two guys. Um, when I went to Spain while writing the book, I went to the place where he was last seen alive, uh, a hilltop uh, in 
northeastern Spain near the town of Gandesa. Uh, a lovely scene today, you know, vineyards, olive groves, red terracotta roofs on those two villages you can see in the valley. But on April 2nd, 1938, it was a grim one. Merriman was leading a group of Republican troops, Americans, volunteers from other countries, some Spaniards, and they came like from the direction where we are, uh, are here onto this hilltop, looked across the valley. They knew that if they could get across the valley and the hills on the other side, they would reach Republican-held territory and they would be safe. But when they reached this hilltop at dawn on that day, there were spotter planes overhead. They saw a column of Franco's troops uh, marching into the valley from one side, uh, uh, trucks full of Mussolini's Italians on the other side, and they knew that they would have a hard time getting across. They split into smaller groups to try to infiltrate uh, under cover of darkness, waiting for night, nightfall. Most of them didn't make it. If, incidentally, Merriman's story sounds at all familiar, tall, athletic, former university instructor from the American West who loses his life in Spain, it's because Ernest Hemingway knew him well and clearly had him in mind when writing his novel, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, where a lot of the characteristics of Robert Jordan, the hero, are modeled um, on Merriman. So why don't I stop here? Wonderful. And uh, uh, we can talk a bit. And glad Thank to hear you, your Thank you. I want to read a, a quote on, on the cover of Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War by Adam Hochschild. Uh, it's from the New Republic. With all due respect to Orwell, Spain in Our Hearts should supplant homage to Catalonia as the best introduction to the conflict written in English, a humane and moving book. And I believe that's actually true. Uh, it's an extraordinary. I, I, I think I would give it to Orwell. I mean, I'm not glad for the quote, but well, uh, Orwell's is a wonderful. You book. you can yeah. you can say that, and I'm grateful for your humility. But for me as a reader, uh, this is a very extraordinary uh, piece of work. Mm -hmm. um, there are many directions we could take here, but let's start with the most obvious one. Um, we are living right now in a period of time where uh, right-wing strongmen are taking power in Europe and the United States. Yeah. And as a historian, as you watch what's taking place now, what are the significant analogies and what are the differences between what you wrote about in Spain and our hearts and what we're experiencing now? Well. One difference is that there isn't a sort of obvious place to go and fight as mm -hmm. there was in Spain. Uh, I wish there was, uh, but uh, it's the, the battles really have to take place within many different countries, including our own. I do think some of the forces that have produced this uh, the rise of right-wing demagogues, you know, both in the United States and Europe, have some analogies to the 1930s. We certainly know that in the 30s, the Great Depression, 
the vast scale of unemployment, uh, you know, put many people into misery and made them ripe for people promising magical solutions. Trust me, I'll solve the problem. Or if we can just, you know, get rid of the Jews or get rid of somebody, that'll solve the problem. Uh, I think today the causes of economic distress are uh, different, harder to see, but there's still a lot of distress out there. You mentioned Arlie's book, Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, and, you know, she zeroed in on the kind of people who ended up voting for Trump, spent five years studying communities in southwest Louisiana. And just from going there with her a couple of times, meeting some of those folks myself, you realize that there are a lot of people hurting in this country. You know, and you look at the statistics for the, that the lower 40 or 50 percent of the American population in income, their relative income, uh, real wages corrected for inflation, has gone down since the 1970s. You have huge numbers of people believing, knowing that their children are not going to be economically as well off as they are. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that sort of sets people up for demagoguery. The similar causes of distress exist, I think, in many countries in Europe, uh, although they vary from country to country. Um, we were just in Poland a couple of months ago and uh, realized that that's a place where, as in the U.S., where the, the South uh, and rural areas are kind of a different political country than the coasts, the same thing there. Eastern and Western Poland, it is this extremely right-wing regime that's in power now, has been put in power mainly by the eastern half of the country, which is more full of smokestack industries that have gotten left behind, more rural. Um, and all kinds of certainties that used to be there that uh, in many countries that you would always have your job in a factory or whatever, and uh, you know your son would have the job after you. Uh, those certainties are no longer there. Uh, I think that other changes are upsetting to people, changes that we welcome because they're changes involving making a more just society. Um, you know, the, the uh, dropping of barriers, um, you know, to, to people of different races, to women and employment and so on, we take as a great step forward, but to many people, this is a world that is extremely unsettling. Uh, I read recently, I need to verify the statistic, I probably shouldn't cite it without verifying it, but apparently for employed Americans under the age of 30, the average woman now earns more than the average man. Well, uh, if that's verifiable, I think it's something to be celebrated, but it's something that's felt to be hugely unsettled, unsettling by men who kind of assumed a position of, of, of uh, 
inherited superiority uh, for generations. So there are all these unsettling factors. There's uh, jobs being outsourced overseas. Um, and, you know, because you can... Uh, um, and everything can be outsourced these days. You know how it is. You pick up a telephone helpline to someone. You're talking to somebody in Manila or Mumbai or whatever. Uh, some local newspapers around the country are trying to uh, outsource coverage of local events by, you know, having a journalist in India watch local city council meetings by Skype and write their stories from there. Uh, People in every occupation know that they're at risk of being outsourced. Robots are on the horizon, already taking many jobs, going to take more. So there's a tremendous degree of economic unsettledness uh, that varies by nature and intensity within this country and between this country and many other countries. But I think that sets up uh, makes such a fertile field for demagogues. You know, vote for me and I will solve the problem. We will get rid of those Muslims. We will get rid of those refugees. We'll get rid of whoever it is that's allegedly the source of the problem. And everything will be um, just right. Again, as it used to be. Uh, now, of course, if you look at how it used to be, it often wasn't the paradise that it get paint, gets painted as. But the the wonderful Polish writer Richard Kapaczynski, who I'm sure some of you know, uh, has a phrase in talking about demagogues of this sort where he says, they always promise to restore the great yesterday. Mm. So, mm. Um, One thing that strikes me as I read this and look at the images, the wonderful photographs you have and showed today, is how different are collective psyche is today. There's a way in which the young people who went to Spain seem hopelessly naive to my ear. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about your experience of immersion in the collective and individual psyches of the young people from the United States who went to war and our collective psyche today, because I can't imagine us responding with this level of naivete. Um, yeah, I mean, there's several dimensions of naivete. One is just the sort of naivete of, uh, of, of the cause. So for example, you talked about how communist socialists and anarchists collectively controlled us. Well, how many of us today believe that a coalition of communists, socialists, and anarchists would understand how to govern uh, uh, Spain, yeah. right? No matter how much we may be opposed to yeah. fascism, yeah. the efforts of socialists and communists to run economies has not turned out well, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, obviously, there are the social democracies of Scandinavia that have worked, and to some degree, European mm -hmm. democracy is, is more social democracy than the United States. But so not only on the economic front, but also just there's this sense of how beautifully naive these people were. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you've reflected on their psyche and ours and 
what the nature of that transformation has been? Well, I think they were naive about some things, but not about others. Mm -hmm. They were certainly naive in thinking that they could go off and win this war in short order. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that naivete is common to almost anybody who enlists in almost any war. Mm -hmm. I mean, you remember the picture of George Bush on the aircraft carrier, mission accomplished, mm -hmm. you know, and all those Americans who went into Iraq thought it would be over in a month or two and the job would be done. Similarly, the, the people who marched off to fight in the First World War, where Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany told his troops, you'll be home before the leaves fall from the trees. So there's always a naivete uh, in going off to join a war because you always think it's going to be over much sooner than it actually mm -hmm. is. And you always think it's the other person who's going to get killed and not me. So there's some naivete there. Certainly, those of the Americans who were communists or communist sympathizers were naive in that they, they did not uh, know what a horror show the Soviet Union was then turning into. The thing I think they were not naive about was that rapidly growing fascism was a real threat. That's obviously true. Because... Yeah. You know, Hitler was making noises about expanding to the east, uh, taking over Europe. Uh, Japan was on the rampage in China. Uh, it was clear that the world was facing a menace of this sort. And that they were not naive about. And, you know, for that, I, uh, I honor the Americans who went to Spain. And I completely agree with that. They were not naive about the threat. But... Um well, let me just go in a more specific direction. I've been fascinated for a long time by the anarchist movement, and uh, it was stronger in Spain, as you say, mm -hmm. than anywhere else. Um, is there an example uh, in your experience as a historian of a place where the anarchists took power and held power for long enough to demonstrate whether an anarchist... Uh, civil state could actually work? Mondragon. Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned Mon the Mondragon collectives yeah. in, in Spain. Yeah. Uh, there are certainly uh, smaller examples of small communities, uh, you know, worker-owned factories or enterprises right. mm -hmm. of one sort or another. Mm -hmm. Uh, which have been successful, and in the case of the Mondragon uh, cooperatives in Spain, have lasted quite a long time. Mm -hmm. We certainly can't point to a whole state mm -hmm. um, that was set up that way and has lasted that way. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I don't think so. But on a small level, yes. Yeah. What, what, what is your sense of the impact of the Spanish Civil War overall on, I don't know quite how to ask the question, but the, the question would be, what was its impact on American culture and letters over time after the war ended? I mean, obviously, you had For Whom the Bell Tolls, you had Homage to Catalonia, you had all the writing that was done. But how did that kind of... I remember when I was young that, um, that the... The Spanish Civil War loomed large in my consciousness. I was born in 43. And um, I remember that um, 
you know, I remember that uh, I had a deep sense at the age of 12 by 55 uh, uh, of how, what a horror Franco was, you know. Um, so I'm just curious whether you've thought about the movement of that moment into American culture and letters and uh, what the impact was. Actually, what's surprising to me is uh, how, with some exceptions, um, you know, the exceptions being people, you know, f families where they knew somebody who went to Spain uh, or a family member had been killed there or something, or Communist Party circles, uh, with those exceptions, I think it vanished pretty quickly mm -hmm. from the consciousness of most Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are also certain places like uh, New York, where mm -hmm. you and I grew up, or the Bay Area, where there were really quite a lot of Spanish Civil War vets and so on, where you, it was more likely to be something that you heard about. <laughs> but despite the enormous amount of coverage it got when it went on, you know, the last Americans came home uh, at the uh, end of 1938. And then fairly quickly the world's attention turned to the outbreak of World War II in Europe. I mean, it was already going on in Asia with the Japanese uh, rampaging around China. Uh, and then, of course, after Pearl Harbor, when the nation mobilized in a way that it never had before on such a vast scale, that kind of largely snuffed out um, the public memory of uh, the Spanish Civil War in this country, except for those who had, you know, family or po political connections to those who had gone. Uh, I heard next to nothing about it uh, growing up. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we didn't know anybody who had, who had been in it. Uh, once I got to the Bay Area, I did begin to get to know some Spanish Civil War vets and began hearing about it, was curious about it. And then I'm sure you remember, you know, in the anti-war marches in the 1960s and 70s, you'd see, um, you know, people marching under signs, veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And it was a new experience for those vets to find themselves cheered because for... 20, 30 years after they got back from Spain, they'd all been mercilessly harassed by the FBI uh, and, uh, you know, J. Edgar, if he could find, if Hoover could find out where each Lincoln vet was employed twice a year, FBI agents would, you know, visit the employer and say, are you aware that you're employing somebody who once served in a communist army? And so a lot of people lost their jobs. Some people changed their names, moved to different parts of the country, tried to shake that surveillance. So I think that sort of crushed the memory for a lot of people. But you point out that uh, Homage to Catalonia came out in 1938. It sold 800 copies till 1950. But then in the Cold War, it sold millions. So there was that dimension that continued, right, as a... Yeah, I think it was. It's it's always interesting to see how a memory can get framed. Mm -hmm. uh, Homage to Catalonia, which I think is a truly extraordinary book, um, was uh, almost ignored once it came out because Orwell had been 
uh, very frank and open about the fratricidal fighting on the Russian, uh, on the, the Republican side, where the uh, communist-backed uh, uh, police of the Republic suppressed the anarchists and this small independent left party that he was affiliated with. There was street fighting in Barcelona uh, that he took part in. Several hundred people were killed. And he wrote about this. And nobody wanted to hear about it then. You know, the people who were backing the Republic wanted to feel that was the cause of good. It was not tarnished by anything. Um, then uh, the book was, was finally published in the U.S. in 1950 with an introduction by uh, Lionel Trilling, who stressed that this was sort of uh, uh, an anti-communist right. document. I mean, he does he's very alert to Orwell's literary qualities. Um, an anti-communist document, and I think because of the Cold War was on, people right. took it in that spirit. Uh, it became very widely read as an example of communist perfidy and so forth. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Hochschild and host Michael Lerner. Nobody noticed that Orwell, five years after he had published Homage to Catalonia, uh, changed his mind about the war and decided that the fratricidal fighting was not the reason why the Republic lost the war, but the Republic lost the war because um, Hitler and Mussolini were supplying one side and the democracies were not supplying the other side. He said these things in an essay he wrote then. He uh, uh, left detailed instructions before his death in 1950 that homage to Catalonia should be revised accordingly, where the chapters about the street fighting should be made appendices, uh, and it would de-emphasize that angle of it. The book was not uh, <clears throat> published in the form in which he wanted it until 35 years after his death in England, and it was not published in that form uh, in the United States until two years ago, mm. where, I'm happy to report, it has an introduction by me, oh. because I pointed it out, this out to the publisher and <laughs> said, we really should do what Orwell wanted, oh. and would you let me write the introduction? Oh, wonderful. Sorry, I want to shift away, you gave me permission, from Spain in Our Hearts to uh, ask you a couple of autobiographical questions uh, that go back to my, the first book that I read of yours, Halfway Home, your, your early autobiographical piece about you and your father. Could you just tell us a little bit about your story, about um, how you grew up, what your family was like, and, and then... What you think in that story brought you to co-found Mother Jones, to be an editor and writer for Ramparts, to be uh, an extraordinary progressive historian uh, who has documented so many of the injustices of the past and the, and the present. Uh, tell us a little about how you, at our current age in our mid-70s, now see well. You may be mid seventies, but I. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm not how, sure. How I you am see? Yet. How you <laughs> see your story from here? Uh, well, I, I had a very lucky up upbringing in many ways. Um, 
And uh, I think the parts that are relevant here was uh, I grew up in a family where uh, my, <clears throat> my father was Jewish, my mother was wasp, uh, my father was an executive of a mining company uh, that uh, had interests in mines in various parts of the world. Uh, at the time that I was growing up, the principal ones were in what uh, today is Zambia, was then the British colony of northern Rhodesia. Uh, he made the terrible mistake of taking me with him once on a business trip to Africa. And I began to realize that our comfortable way of life and my being able to, you know, go to college and do all sorts of other good things was based on the labor of African miners who were working far under the earth for very low pay and in very hard conditions, uh, and that those uh, profits were flowing back to, to this country. And it was kind of my introduction to how the world worked. Um, and, uh, but it was a paradoxical uh, setting because my father, even though he was a corporate executive, was an extremely liberal man. Uh, and on the, the issue that divided so many people in our generation from our parents, the Vietnam War, we were on the same side. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought the war was, was terrible and, and uh, said so, so vocally that he ended up on Richard Nixon's enemies list uh, you may remember Nixon's mm. famous enemies mm. list. And he told a reporter who interviewed him at one point he was proud to be on Nixon's enemies list. Mm. Uh, so I grew up with a kind of paradox in that way. But I think my life was perhaps above all affected by coming of age in the, the early 1960s. Um, and I'm sure that's an experience <laughs> shared by a number of you here that... It was a time when I think a lot of things, um, you know, a glamorous new young president in the White House, John F. Kennedy, um, who was a mixed story in many ways. You know, he raised the military budget and did all sorts of other not very nice things. But he somehow took the lid off of what seemed politically possible mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, the civil rights movement of... Uh, uh, came to life in a big way. Uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were briefly civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964. And of course, all of us uh, who were male at that point were faced with the draft and the question of, uh, are you going to serve in this war? Or are you going to resist in some form? Uh, are you going to you know, risk your life for this insane adventure in Vietnam. So I ended up getting very involved in the anti-war movement. And I th so I think those times, coming of age in those times, had a huge effect on me. Uh, if I'd come of age in the 1950s, who knows? I might have become a corporate lawyer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I give a lot, a lot more credit to the times than to... Uh, almost anything else, I think. If you look back now, as again, as a historian on uh, our generation and both its efforts to right injustices and open up a new way in the world, and also its 
its failures to achieve many of the things you want. How can you begin to imagine historians will assess uh, what we tried to do, what we achieved, what we failed? What does it? What do you imagine? Because it won't be written for some time. Yeah. Our legacy will will turn out to be. Well. Um, I still feel very fondly towards the 1960s and mm -hmm. those of us who began getting active then. Uh, I do think that um, a lot of good things came out of that time. Uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, um, the women's movement was reawakened uh, at the end of the 1960s and we are still feeling the reverberations of that today. Uh, and I prefer to focus on those positive uh, things, which I think are enormously positive. I, you know, the, the environmental movement really was reborn, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s too. Uh, it still feels to me an exciting time where a lot of movements came to life that are still deeply needed today. We've had tremendous setbacks uh, in many fields and, you know, have not been able to stop some insane wars uh, in the way that uh, I think the movement at home in conjunction with the Vietnamese did stop the, the Vietnam War. Um, obviously, Trump is a, is a colossal setback. Uh, but you know, sometimes the setbacks allow you to see more clearly what has to be done and what kind of alliances need to be forged. Uh, and I do sense a certain optimism about that in the air right now. Before we open it up to questions, uh, one final question for now from me uh, is whether you're willing to tell us what you're working on now. Um, I will, but in a very uh, uh, appreciated, yeah. I don't want to give away too right. much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on a book about some early uh, American radicals in the period uh, 1900 to 1920. Uh, another very hopeful time. Um, I don't know, I'm often attracted to, to moments when people um, felt uh, that the world was about to change. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the world in that area, it did change, but not in the way that they hoped. They thought the revolution was going to come, and instead we got the First World War and all the horrible stuff that came out of that. But those moments of great optimism still uh, attract me. Thank you. Mark Dowie, let me start with you. What's on your mind as you listen to your friend Adam today? Well, Adam and I have taken very similar paths since we worked together for years. Um, Adam was by far, was one of my first editors and by far the best editor I ever had mm -hmm. um, as a magazine writer. Um, but, but I'm curious to, to know, Adam, um, we've both become historians, as many journalists do, and focused on investigative history, um, as you and I both have. And I've started hearing, I don't know whether you have, I've started hearing from academic historians um, who I know and went to college with and went on to, into academic careers in history about their attitude towards what we're doing. Hmm. Um, they seem to belittle the credentials and experience and professionalism of journalists 
As historians, they acknowledge that we have provided a lot of the raw material uh, for history, um, but that uh, we should not become historians because we're not trained as historians, even though um, I wish historians had learned the investigative yeah. skills that you and I have developed. Um, it would make <laughs> history a lot more accurate if they did. But <clears throat> So I just wonder whether you're hearing that at all from, from uh, Dr. So-and-so, Professor of History, uh, about what you're doing. Uh, I occasionally do, although, uh, and, and where, I, where I really hear it is uh, occasionally a book of mine will get reviewed in a scholarly journal. Mm -hmm. And of course, scholarly journals are where you, that's your chance to really belittle somebody, you know. <laughs> uh, but I had a funny experience once in this regard um, about, uh, about 20 years ago, I published a book which some of you may know, King Leopold's Ghost, A History of the, the King Leopold of Belgium and the Conquest of the Congo. And somebody alerted me to the fact that on the kind of bulletin board website that historians used, it's called HNET, uh, that there was a thread of discussion about the book started. And I looked at it, and it was fascinating because, you know, it began by somebody saying, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> he's writing about our, our stuff, and has anybody ever heard of him? He doesn't have a background in African studies and so on. And then, you know, there were people writing things about the book. and said, well, it seems to be pretty accurate. And then someone else chimed in and said, well, he didn't mention my book in his bibliography. <laughs> uh, and then... Somebody's saying, well, is it this story told in too personal a way? And, you know, one shouldn't use first person in writing about this. And then somebody else chimed in and said, yeah, but, you know, it's bringing more students into our classes yeah. because they like it. And this went on with, you know, different kinds of comments <coughs> like that. And then finally, I made the mistake of mentioning that I was watching this to a historian who introduced me once when I gave a talk, and he posted a little thing saying, you know, he's reading all of this, and the comments <laughs> stopped. Uh, but I've generally had, uh, you know, the academic world, there's certainly no shortage of, you know, people who are jealous of their territory and not liking somebody else muscling in on it. Uh, but I've generally had good experiences when I reach out to people. Because when I write a book about something, you know, um, whatever it is, in this case, the Spanish Civil War, there are, you know, dozens of historians who've spent their whole lives writing about the Spanish Civil War. I always try to get to know some of them. You know, once I'm part way in, I try to strike up a relationship by email where I can ask questions and so forth. And then I always, um, before I'm finished, I will ask four or five academic historians, you know, say, I've learned a lot from your work. Would you mind reading my manuscript? Mm -hmm. And usually people say yes. Uh, and what uh, a couple of books ago with Bury the Chains, which is about the British anti-slavery movement, and there are a lot of historians who do slavery, you know, hundreds of them different parts of the world, I wrote to six of these people uh, saying, I've learned a lot from your work. Would you read my manuscript? Five of them did so. And 
what was moving to me is that two of them, in addition to correcting errors and so on, which was what I was mainly hoping for and expecting, two of them made literary type comments. Um, you know, you make a lot of this character later on, shouldn't you introduce him earlier? Uh, somebody else said, well, wouldn't it be more suspenseful if you changed the orders of chapters four and five? And these were intelligent comments. And these are not people who write this way at all. These are people who write, you know, scholarly journal articles where there are more words in the footnotes than in the text. But they kind of appreciated somebody taking their material and trying to get it to a wider audience. Um, and then I've uh, a couple of times had, you know, there, there are, especially among younger people in the academy and especially in history, there are people who really do want to write for a wider audience and who realize that the way they're trained, you know, writing PhD theses and so on, is not the way that you reach that audience. And, you know, there have been a couple of conferences on the subject, you know, how to write history for a wider audience that I've been invited to and so on. So there's some people who are sympathetic, but the, the scholarly journal reviews is what you've got to watch out for. <laughs> Howard Dillon, you had a comment. Yeah, uh, following some of the things that Michael said, it, it seems to me, looking at the, the, the story of the Spanish Civil War, that the groups on the left, there were so many different points of view, and as you said, the the communists uh, suppressed the anarchists and so on, that the right, the nationalist side seemed so much more unified, uh, quite apart from the fact that they had better uh, military gear. Uh, is there a way to unify the left? It's, it's a constant <laughs> theme through the last 30, 40 years. In every situation, I keep seeing disarray on the left because of all these in the widest possible sense, do you see any way of, of, of uniting the left? Well, I think around the world, then and now, it's always easier to unite the right because the ideas are simpler yes. and you got people you can hate. You know, we can all agree that, you know, we, we hate the Jews or the blacks or the Freemasons in Spain or whatever. Um, left people tend to be going off in all directions, a little more, more fractious. I actually think, though, that, um, you know, there are examples of successful coalitions. I think, in a way, the left-wing coalition in Spain was partly successful. I, I think what really won the war for the nationalists was that they had this immense stream of help from Hitler and Mussolini. You know, the latest arms, the Messerschmitt fighter planes, the, you know, 80,000 ground troops from Mussolini. They had all of that uh, and all the ammunition and artillery and so forth they wanted. The Republic had, had none of this. Uh, but there were, even though the coalition was a very fractious one, uh, there were a number of different parties that were in the Republican uh, coalition. Uh, there was a period of time when the anarchists dropped their opposition to being a part of any government and actually joined that coalition for a time. Um, so, and, and one can think of other 
times and places where there have been left coalitions that have worked. Uh, you know, when the Greens and the Social Democrats ran Germany together for some years. Um, so I think coalitions are possible, and I think we got to build them, and it's the only way. Well, the New Deal was a progressive yeah. coalition. Yeah. Dale Polisar, you had a comment. Yes, <clears throat> I was wondering if <clears throat> I was wondering if Howard Fast novels were an inspiration to you as a young man, and also I wanted to ask how you keep up your hope and courage writing about the things you do. I mean, Leopold's Ghost. The First World War, mm. the Spain, such a load of stupidity and misery. Uh, of course, hero, it must be the heroism that buoys you up. But uh, yeah, but what about my anti-slavery people? They did get rid of slavery. That's yeah, true. So, <laughs> and uh, uh, I think, uh, actually, I'm ashamed to say I have not read Howard Fast, uh, but... You know, in any of these struggles, you find um, people, even in the midst of monstrous evil, as with, with uh, uh, King Leopold and colonialism in Africa, there were good people who were trying to do their best to expose what was going on. And I find their story inspirational. Uh, and no matter how bad the tyranny, it's the stories of people who were fighting against it that that interest me. Uh, and often, you know, the battle is not won until a generation or several generations later, but the sense of continuity across the generations among people fighting those battles is one of the things that keeps me going. Eric Karpolis. I'm sure that you've come across um, reference to Simone Weil. In, in this, because mm -hmm. she was a, a character whose yeah. involvement in the war was, was of interest. She went back to France after having volunteered, and for quite a long time took a, uh, took a pacifist stance based upon her experiences as a soldier in the Spanish Civil War. And when the time came when war was emerging in Europe, she encouraged people not to do that. And I was wondering if you found a parallel among Americans who came back uh, in terms of their relationship to the uh, onset of the Second World War. Actually, not that I'm aware of. The Americans, uh, you know, as I mentioned, 2,800 Americans went to Spain, 750 were killed, the remainder came home. Uh, at least 400 of them. Uh, were in the U.S. Armed Forces in World War II. Uh, more than 20 were killed uh, in World War II. And I think they felt, you know, we, we already fought the first round in the battle against fascism. We want to we keep, keep fighting. Uh, I mean, I admire people who are, who are pacifists uh, in the world wars. It was a difficult stance to take, especially in the Second World War, but I'm not aware of any Spanish Civil War vets who were among them mm. in this country. You had a comment. Um, actually, it's re related to what Eric said. Um, the volunteers that you knew and met, how did they assess their efforts looking back, you know, years, decades later? Uh, I, the ones I knew personally all felt, I remember the, the first volunteer 
I met was I was a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, 1965-66, and I discovered there were two Spanish Civil War vets, older reporters, uh, on the staff. The Chronicle then as now is not a very good newspaper, but it was very good about giving jobs to people who would have been blacklisted elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And in talking to one of them, uh, George Draper, I was asking him, how do you think back on the war? And the first words out of his mouth were, I wish we'd won. Mm. Uh, the other uh, uh, reporter, who I think lived in Marin until his death a few years ago, Jim Benet, who was the uh, paper's news ed education correspondent, was a little more reserved. But um, uh, I think almost... Uh, all of them, if there were any who, if there were any American Spanish Civil War vets who wished that they had not gone to Spain or fought, I have not met them or heard about them. Mm. Um, there were certainly some of them who became bitterly disillusioned with communism. No doubt about that, as with, you know, many people who were part of the communist movement at that point. But, you know, a number of those who went were not part of the movement to begin with, and a lot of those who were disillusioned with communism later, and even bitterly so, still felt they had fought for something useful uh, in, in Spain. Christina Flanagan. Such a wonderful presentation. Thank you. I, um, could you draw any thoughts about fake news mm. as it compares to the propaganda machine of the early 20th century? Is it similar? Is it different? What do you think of it? Well, it seems to me we've had some version of fake news for a long time. I mean, obviously there is the technological ability to get this out there very fast on social media and so on these days. Um, I guess the, the period of fake news that I'm most familiar with historically, because it, it, I dealt with it quite a bit in the, the book that I wrote before this one, which was To End All Wars, which is about the uh, uh, First World War, and in particularly particular focus on focusing on the struggle between people who believed that the war was a noble crusade and the war resistors. And most of the book is about England because that's where this tension was strongest. And uh, one of the characters in the book was basically the head of British propaganda operations mm -hmm. during the war. And then, as tends to happen in many, many wars since then, the propaganda was enormous. Uh, the reporters who were allowed to go to the uh, battlefront were tightly monitored. There was always a minder military officer with each one. Their dispatches were censored. Uh, and when there were uh, these horrible battles, you know, like the, the most famous one, I think, is the Battle of the Somme, where... Uh, more than 20,000 British soldiers were killed on the first day, uh, most of them in the first hour, uh, because they were, you know, uh, 
120,000 men trying to advance against German machine guns, barbed wire entrenchments, and so forth. The battle ground on for four or five months, ended up maybe taking about five miles of ground, and it continually, every day, every step of the way, all along, it was portrayed as, you know, a great victory. And uh, you can, if you have control of a propaganda apparatus, you can control, you can portray anything as a victory. Uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, Hitler was so um, easily able to hoodwink the German people into feeling that um, they had been betrayed and stabbed in the back in the First World War. You know, part of his his Hitler's rhetoric was that we were about to win uh, the war in 1918, and then Jews, communists, pacifists uh, stabbed the noble German soldier in the back uh, and made this terrible deal uh, at, at Versailles. Well, one of the reasons why that was he had such an easy time doing that was that right up to the very end in the um, First World War, right up to the moment they stopped fighting, November 11th, 1918, uh, there was this enormous German propaganda barrage that portrayed the German army as being on the verge of, of, of victory. And of course, if you've got a son or a husband at the front and you know you want to believe that they're on the verge of victory, and then boom, suddenly it's announced that you know, in effect, we've surrendered and there are allied occupation troops coming in and so on. Uh, the strength of that fake news was part, partly set things up mm. for Hitler. And I think there's equivalent fake news uh, all the time that governments do around wars, most spectacularly. Uh, you know, that, that sign on Bush's aircraft carrier, mission accomplished, that's fake news. Uh, the, you know, the extreme censorship uh, of stories that took place um, in the First World War uh, and uh, in the Second. You know, there's tight control over what correspondents can report. Vietnam was a little bit different because it wasn't a war with a defined, closely defined front line. Uh, there was a city, Saigon, where the reporters could be independent and kind of be out of government control. Uh, they didn't have to send their dispatches back to the United States, you know, through military communications networks. Uh, and I think Americans had a much more accurate picture of what was going on as a result of that. And you've been reading Spain in Our Hearts with the library book and had a question. Yeah. Um, although the question comes out of what you've been saying, I was so struck by you talking in um, in talking about Reber's love of of dictators. The list did not include Stalin, so he was clear on that. He, he wasn't going to go there. All the other strong guys, but yeah, right. Although who knows if Stalin had wanted to buy some oil, I'm sure he yeah. would have okay. happily right. sold it to him. Yeah. Which was also impressive about the ores. You know, they were leftist, but they were anti-Stalinist, yeah. which it took a lot of people a long time mm -hmm. to figure yeah. out. Any so, how does that happen? How do people have that kind of of clarity when 
there were so many heartbroken old communists. Yeah. Well, this is something that's, that's long been fascinating to me, you know, attitudes of Americans and other foreigners towards the Soviet Union. Uh, I think there, too, uh, there was some fake news involved. Uh, the Soviets were not only extremely skillful propagandists, but they were very, very good at controlling what foreign correspondents in Moscow were allowed to report. And the famous, notorious example, of course, is Walter Durante, the New York Times correspondent in Moscow, who basically poo-pooed the purge trials, poo-pooed the idea that there had been a famine in the early 1930s. And, you know, yes, food is a little bit short and so on, but uh, nothing like this. And uh, that kind of set the tone for the Western press's coverage of the Soviet Union. There was a very bold uh, British reporter, Welsh actually, Gareth Jones, who published the first eyewitness accounts of the terrible famine that killed uh, about five million people in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. It was the man-made famine that was the result of the forced collectivization of agriculture. He published these articles in England, and the Soviets twisted the arms of all the foreign correspondents in Moscow, uh, some of whom had been quietly giving information to Jones, mm. twisted their arms to get them to deny that, to, to denounce him and deny that he had, uh, uh, deny the things that he said. So they were masters of, uh, of propaganda. And it was a time in the West then, uh, the Depression years, when people were desperate to believe with, you know, the vast suffering in the, United, in the United States, people out of work, riding the rails, looking for jobs, Hooverville, shanty towns everywhere. They were desperate to believe that there's got to be somewhere in the world where they figured out how to do something better than this. And in Russia, whatever their other faults, there was no unemployment. They were hiring uh, American and European skilled workers, technicians, engineers. Lots of people went there uh, to live. And so it was pretty easy. If you wanted to believe in a paradise, it was pretty easy to believe that it was in the Soviet Union. Um, just as a final question, um, the line attributed to Martin Luther King, but I believe it goes far earlier than that, that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. You know, when I think about at least the last 500 years of Western history, the movement from uh, monarchy to democracy, from serfdom and slavery to freedom, the women's movement, the human rights movement, civil rights movement, gay rights movement, and now the Me Too movement, which I think is an incredibly mm -hmm. important movement. Uh, I, and I look at, uh, I look at uh, uh, the movements toward uh, democracy around the world, the ends of imperialisms of many different kinds. Um, on the one hand, I see the tremendous threat of climate change, chemicals, all the environmental forms of destruction, and the growing inequity under capitalism. But on the other hand, it seems to me that these right-wing 
movements have time and time again ultimately been beaten back. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately, at least for the last 500 years, the arc of history has seemed to bend toward justice. Is that something you would agree with or disagree yes. with? You would agree with? Yes. Well, on that perfect note, Adam Mitchell, <laughs> thank you so much for being with Good. us at the Mace Show. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Hochschild and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.